My name is Tara. I'm a compulsive overeater. And I have to say, I'm sure I'm not the first one to say this, but I'm like my heart's jumping out of my chest. So I'm just going to take a minute and remind myself that my ego's out there, like God isn't here. Um, and all I have to share is my experience, strength, and hope on this journey. Um, and it, it's an honor to be here because almost seven years ago, this was my first meeting. Um, and I, didn't, I don't live anywhere near here. Um, but I came to this meeting and heard you, saw myself, heard myself, and felt like there were people like me out there in the world. That what went on between these ears, I wasn't the only one who thought what I thought, who had done what I did. And it was so, it was such a gift um, to come into this particular room. Um, and then I also have to share that um, somebody that I haven't seen in probably six years, who was the first person who really broke down this program for me, walked in the door today. Um, and that's another gift from my higher power, learning about the gift of being of service. And this fellow sat down with me when I was a newcomer, like after a meeting that ended at 8 at night and spent a half an hour with all of my questions. Well, what is abstinence? And what is the food plan? And what is this? And what is that? And it's just the gift of you know, being of service and we get recovery knowing that in order to keep it, we have to give it away. And so I'm reminded of service and I'm really grateful to be here and I thank Michael for asking me <laughs> to speak today. Um, so I'll keep with the format of what it was like, what happened and what it's like now. Um, you know, not uncommon to these rooms. I grew up in an alcoholic home, so there was a lot of chaos and unpredictability in my life. And the way that I coped with that was you know, learning to scan a room and see, like, what you needed, who you needed me to be so that I could keep sort of conflict down and, and myself okay. Like, that was my way of creating a little bit of stability in my life. I learned to make myself small. I learned that, you know, if I could be really, really good, then maybe I would be okay. And maybe you would be okay and we would be okay as our family. And so I started with control, perfectionism, overachieving, Worrying about what you thought about me have been, like, they are just a part of my DNA. Like, I, I don't remember a moment when those weren't the things guiding my life. Um, you know, as a kid, the food, I wasn't somebody, I think, that kind of came out of the crib as a compulsive reader. You know, my, my food was, I was a picky eater. I wasn't that interested in food when I was young. Um, my first memories, which I didn't realize until I came into these rooms and I started with like thinking about my food and body and sanity with my sponsor. But when my, I grew up in New York and when my parents split, my mom and I moved to California. We sort of fled the scene and we didn't know anybody outside of New York City other than we had one family friend who was in San Diego, so that's where we landed. Um, and I would go back to visit my dad and my dad is the alcoholic in my life and he would pick me up with a car full of binge foods. Um, and I would get in the car and just start, like, shoveling it in because I was so scared and so uncomfortable and felt so unsafe that food just was that, you know, the bomb that helped, helped me cope, like helped me be there for the two or three weeks that I was there each summer. But when I wasn't there, I, food was pretty regulated in my life um, growing up. And that's not to say I didn't have body issues, you know. So while when I was younger, it wasn't necessarily my weight, but it was I was too pale, I was too flat-chested, I had too much acne. There were always things about my body that I wasn't right, I wasn't enough, I wanted to be different. Um, 
And as I got older, that sort of stayed my story. And when I got into college, um, that's when my eating disorder, in a, in a very obvious form, took off. So I had a sort of an emotional rupture in my life, and I felt like, well, now I'm going to be in Los Angeles, in college, and in the dating world, so I should lose weight. Um, and I didn't really know how to do that, so I just started eating less. And it worked. And then I kind of got excited by the eating less, and I got a little bit of high of eating less. And the restricting um, was a high as well for a while. And during that time, you know, it started to really show on my body, and there was a lot of lying about what I was doing, lying about what I ate when I hadn't eaten it um, to my parents, because I was still under their, you know, my mom and my stepdad, I was still under their roof. And my mom took me to get an eating disorder assessment when I was 19. That person suggested I go to an OA meeting, which I did at age 19. And I went into the rooms, and I was terrified of you. You know, I did not hear my story. I did not see myself. And I remember, and what's funny about this now is because now I'm this woman. There was a woman who was pregnant and was talking about being bulimic. And I was 19, year old, 19 years old and purging. And she was pregnant and she was purging. And I thought, oh, my God. Like, how could you be that person? Um, and 20 years later, <laughs> there I was, um, you know, in a sem- similar life station, doing similar things. And so I then spent 20 years doing research. I didn't come back. I left. And as they say, I did a lot of research. Um, and what that looked like over the course of those years, it's nothing, you know, I'm not unique. I restricted. I binged. I purged. I exercised. Um, And then I got help at some point, outside help, which helped with some of the, like, really red flag uh, manifestations or behaviors. Um, But what that did was I didn't actually get recovery because I didn't know at that time that what I had was a spiritual malady. Um, So while the purging was relieved and some of the obsessive compulsive exercising was relieved, um, compulsive eating and compulsive overeating was not. Um, And I spent 20 years kind of ebbing and flowing with my disease and sometimes food would be quieter and my body would be quieter but that was because I was filling the God-sized hole with other things Um, so that could be I had a job that was full of adrenaline and full of passion and like that was my drug for you know many years it could be shopping it could be obsessing about what you think about me it could be controlling people around me like I'll fill it with whatever I can fill it whatever is available and accessible to me And so, and just, you know, for for the newcomers or for people listening, you know, because I remember the shame I felt coming into the room and just saying, you know, I lie about what I eat. I don't anymore. I I lied about what I eat. I've eaten out of the trash. I've, you know, thrown up in showers. I've thrown up in cars. I've, um, gosh, you know, you name it, I've done it when it comes to, you know, food in my body. And so what happened was, um, you know, what happened was I had a kid. I mean, that's essentially what happened. I think leading into becoming a parent, um, my food was always a pain. My body was always a pain. I was always obsessing about it. But I had a life. You know, I got married outside of these rooms. I got pregnant outside of these rooms. I held jobs. You know, I did lots of things outside of these rooms still in my disease. 
And I had a kid, and having that kid, like, I lost my mind. Like, my disease hit a level. I feel like when I was in college, it was really intense. And then it kind of did this for the 20 years. Um, I wasn't in enough pain during those 20 years. And then when I had a daughter, I went back to the intensity of what it was when I was in college. And I was lying to my husband, lying to my daughter, who didn't even understand what was happening, but I was lying. Um, And this is still, like, hard to admit, but I admit it because, like, I'm not alone. You know, I would want to not be with my daughter so I could go eat, so I could do what I wanted to do with food. She was getting in the way of my disease and my addiction and, like, my first love. And those were my bottoms, you know, having that. I remember she was almost two years old, and we were going to some indoor playground, and I was going through a drive through and telling this child who didn't understand what was happening, oh, Mommy's just getting some water. You know, that's not what Mommy was doing. And then, you know, going to a playground for an hour, waiting for the appropriate amount of time to leave to go back and do the same thing again. And, and finding another place so the drive through attendant wouldn't recognize me. You know, the lies about, oh, I'm having a party. That's why I'm getting all this food. Um, or, like, going to all these different places to make sure, like, people didn't find out my secret. Um, but my higher power knows, like, I have to be in an extraordinary amount of pain um, to sort of accept the realities of my disease. So that wasn't enough. Like, those bottoms of the shame wasn't enough. Um, And then what happened was I was diagnosed within the first two years of my daughter's life, I was diagnosed with two autoimmune conditions, um, Hashimoto's and lupus. And I think when I got my lupus diagnosis and I started researching about it, like, I really felt like, bless you, I really felt like I could die from this. And I knew enough that, like, I wanted to be a mom to this child. I had lost a pregnancy before having her. Like, I wanted to do this. Um... And what I was clear about because of the 20 years of research was that I couldn't do it myself. Like, I did know that how I treated my body was a factor in having the manifestations of these illnesses. And I knew that if I could have done it myself, I would have, because I had done a lot of other things in life. Um, And so I had some powerlessness when I came into these rooms. And so I went online and I found the podcasts, which weren't around, you know, 19, 20 years ago when I first came into the rooms. And what a gift, which is also why, like, I'm so honored to share at this meeting because the podcast got me to this room because I heard my story. I listened to probably eight or ten of them, and then I heard myself. And I said, okay, maybe I'll give this a try. And I came into these rooms also with my obsessive thinking. Like, I was going to stop the woman that I heard because I was sure she was going to be my higher power and she was going to get me abstinent and, like, cure me. Um, And so I came to this particular room, and my sole purpose was to ask all of you if you knew her and how to find her. Um, And you knew her, and you told me how to find her, Um, which I did across the street at the women's meeting. Um that used to be across the street, uh, the women's meeting on Sunday. And I'm just grateful for those God shots because that got me into another room full of women who were younger than me, older than me, my age, and their level of vulnerability, like what people shared in those rooms, like blew my mind. Um, and I, the woman that I talked is not my sponsor, who's an amazing person, has amazing recovery, uh, but I found my sponsor. And I guess the gift of desperation and fear of dying um, is that I wasn't messing around. Like, if I was going to do this, I think, 
you know, my first meeting maybe was December 6th. By December 20th, that was my first day of abstinence. Had a sponsor, started working the steps within two weeks of coming into these rooms. Now, that doesn't mean I did everything fast, because it probably took me five years to do the steps. Um, but I got going, and I knew that I belonged, um, and I knew that there was a solution, and I knew that you all had it. Um, and if I was just willing to listen and to be teachable, something would change in my life. Um, and so I started coming to meetings, working with a sponsor and working with steps and got some recovery. And, you know, my first year and a half or two years in program, I lost another pregnancy. Um, we moved cities. We sold a home. We moved cities. There was a lot of life happening. And I did it all accidentally. And before, you know, if it would be raining and I walked out without an umbrella, like, I'd be binging, purging, who knows what. If I was walking down the hall and you didn't make eye contact me, it's because I was horrible and it was my fault, and so I would be eating at you, at me, and everything else. Um, so the fact that, that was always a gift to me, hearing that you can go through really intense, painful things in these rooms, and you can do it abstinently. That doesn't mean pain-free, because there's still a lot of pain. It's just that I have a lot of other tools today than I did then. Um, I then moved, and I, and I want to share that, because like the gift of these rooms in this city is, is really unique. And I left Los Angeles and moved to another city. My husband and I thought that perhaps being in a cleaner air and a less stressful city, et cetera, et cetera, might help with my lupus. Um, it did not. We're back. Because um, really, like, I'm the problem. Um, and so, which, you know, I was sure I wasn't doing a geographic because I had these, like, health reasons to, you know, inter, interweave into it. Um, but perhaps there was, there was a strain of that. So we moved to another city, and I didn't leave the rooms. I maintained my sponsor here in Los Angeles because I wanted to finish walking. I wanted to finish the steps with her. And the rooms were just different. And there's recovery there, but it just wasn't the recovery that spoke to me in the life moment that I was in. And I stayed in the rooms, but it started getting a little white knuckly, you know, and like my weight started to like, you know, inch up slowly, but it was hard to know. You know, I, I'm on these medications, they mess around with my weight. Um, I'm, you know, perimenopausal, like who knows what happens. But what I've learned in these rooms, like, it's none of my business what's going on. Like, all I know to do is come into these rooms to work the steps, to use the tools, and to lead my body to God. Um, so we moved back <clears throat> a little over a year ago, and it's just such a gift to be back in these rooms again. And, you know, what's, what's interesting in my program is I'm, I'm having a, like, a renaissance, I would say, in my recovery, which is also so beautiful about this. Is there's no one abstinence. Your abstinence might kill me. Your abstinence, vice versa. I'll probably mess it up if I try to do it. But vice versa. But, but the gift is, like, my journey has been like this. It's not linear. Like, I have very imperfect recovery, but the one thing that I've done perfectly is never left. I've never stopped working the steps. I've never stopped praying. I've never stopped using the tools. I've never stopped having complete faith that I am powerless and that there is a higher power that can restore me to sanity like when I'm willing to do the work and when I'm willing to turn my life over. And so today, you know, what, um, what I want to share is that, you know, for my first, and if I didn't say, like, I'm, I'm seven years, um, almost seven years in program and almost seven years abstinent, 
um, was that when I first came in, I was two meetings a week, I had, and I had one commitment. And the sponsor that I'm working with was not a food sponsor, was a step sponsor. And so what I noticed about that, in the beginning, I needed that, because I came from a lot of good food, bad food. So if I ate a good food, I was good. If I ate a bad food, I was bad. Like, I was incredibly rigid. Um, and I needed to not have food be the center of this, because really, food isn't the issue. Like, what happens between my ears is the issue, and food is the manifestation. Um, but I got to a certain point where it's not about the food until it is about the food. Um, and so I'm now kind of in a moment where I've also am working with a food sponsor where I'm now doing more with my food, talking more about my food than I have in the past. And that wouldn't have worked for me seven years ago. Like I probably, probably would have ran out the door and not come back. Um, but today, like I understand that that's what my recovery needs. And so today what it looks like is I go to four meetings a week. I have three commitments. Um, you know, prior I was sort of on the outskirts of the herd. Um, and I've shared this before in one of my home meetings that my daughter is obsessed with wild cats. And so we watch a lot of nature videos. So if you are on the outskirts of a herd, you get eaten, right? And so being on the outskirts of, of our herd, like I wasn't getting the recovery that you have. Um, and so I've now been encouraged and I'm willing to listen and I'm willing to go to any length to be in the middle of the herd. I'm willing to come early. I'm willing to stay late. I'm willing to drive from Pasadena to Brentwood on Saturday afternoons to go to a meeting. Um, I'm willing to take commitments at three meetings. Um, I have a willingness now that I didn't have before. And the results in my recovery and the serenity in my brain that I'm feeling, like, it, it shows. Like, I feel it. Um, and so that's new to me. And it's new to me seven years in and almost seven years abstinent. Um, these are not new ideas, but a new level of willingness um, to walk that walk. Um, and to, you know, another, like, a new person I'm working with has, has given me lots of little, like, sound bites in my head. You know, to be a giver, not a taker um, in these rooms. And I so appreciate being reminded of that. Thank you. I hear that. Um, because it's really all about me. You know, like, what can I get out of it? Like, what are you going to give to my recovery? And, like, if the meeting's not working for me, then I'm not coming because it's all about me. Um, and so, you know, recovery has taught me that um, it's about you. And being about you, you know, gives me recovery. And, like, what my life looks like today is, um, and I cheer up usually when I say this, because my bottom, you know, my, my bottom around my daughter and the lies and the things that I did and said because of my disease as a parent, um, like, I am a good mom. Um, I don't think before these rooms I ever truly felt in my heart that I was good at anything. Um, I was not enough. I didn't do enough. I didn't have enough. Um, and you, you know, make the list of all those not enough. And today, like, I am a really good mom. I'm, an, I'm a highly imperfect mom, but I'm a really good mom. Um, and my daughter gets to grow up with a parent in recovery. So she gets to have, as a part of her vernacular, compare and despair. Like, that's relevant for an 8-year-old, you know, as much as it's relevant for a 46-year-old. Like, she gets to have that as a part of her life. She gets to know that we can do hard things, that feelings pass, they won't kill us. 
that we can sit together, we can hold hands through them, and they'll pass. And that's because of all of you in these rooms. Like, she gets to have those experiences. And that I've also learned a different way of parenting because of these rooms. She gets to have her feelings without me trying to quash them, censor them. Um, And that is a wild experience about what that looks like in the give-and-take world of a parent. Like, letting a little human, like, have their experience without trying to control it and change it and have it be what I think it should be or want it to be. Um, I accept my humanity. You know, I make mistakes, and I get to tell my daughter that. Like, being human, like, part of being human is making mistakes and then making amends. Like, she gets to see me doing that with her all the time. I didn't have a lot of parents, a lot of parents, I don't know that many parents, but I don't know that I had any parents that made amends to me as a child. But I make amends all the time, and I let my daughter see that I am imperfect. And she knows that there's no such thing as perfect. Like, those are our, like, family values and the mantras in our family, that there's no such thing as perfect. And I live that way today because of these rooms. I also get to tell her that, you know, what other people think of you is none of your business. You know, and I get to remind every time I say that, like, I have to remind myself of that. Because that's still one of my, that still gets me. I still... You know, that's what's hard about standing up here is because I still want, you know, I still worry about what you're going to think about me and what I'm saying. But as often as I get to say that to her, like, it's also like my higher power saying it to myself. It's almost sometimes like the sponsor-sponsee relationship. Like, what I say to my kid is exactly what I need to hear sometimes. Um, I get to tell her that her body is her business. It's nobody else's. And everybody else's bodies are their business, not hers. And those are all things that I, I learned in this room. I've learned to choose faith over fear. I've learned that God is everything or God is nothing. And those have been things that really helped me through my daily life. Like, I do have a blueprint for living. And while I may have gotten some, like, recovery, and I'm doing air quotes, um, before I came into these rooms, like, the recovery, like, upon awakening, like, tells me what to do every single day. Like, I don't have to have my plans, because one of my other, sort of, the manifestations of my disease was figuring it out. Like, I'm going to figure it out. And my sponsor said, which I always love to share, because it's been one of those nuggets for me that has gotten me through life and recovery, figuring it out is not a tool of this program. And that has been such a gift. So I, I open the big book, I can read page 86 every day, and it tells me what to do. And when my head is spinning, because boy, does it still spin, you know, then I can read acceptance is the, you know, the only answer to all of my problems today. Um, And I'm grateful that I can just be, you know, another bozo on the bus, um, taking life and recovery one day at a time, and knowing that, like, I don't get ponies and unicorns, which is what I wanted before, when I came into these rooms, Uh, but what I do get is a way to live, like, a life of integrity and a life of serenity when and if I'm willing to do the work. Um, And I'm grateful that my higher power also knows that sometimes I need to be brought into a little bit of pain to be reminded about that. Um, And I'm grateful um, for all of you. I hear that. I'm grateful for all of you and the inspiration and the example that you give me every day in my recovery. So thanks for letting me share. This is a time for questions only. There's no sharing at this meeting. If you need to share, please do so with any one of us after the meeting. Also, please remember that the opinions of the leaders are my of the leader are my own and not those of Overeaters Anonymous as a whole.
When asking questions, you need not identify yourself. Please remember, if you ask a question, your voice may be audible on the OA podcast. Thank you so much for your share. Um, you talked about how when you first came in, you couldn't really define an abstinence. You had to focus on the steps. When you sponsor new people to the program, I'm just wondering how you approach that. Sure. The question is um, that when I first came into the rooms, I mentioned my abstinence not being that defined and focusing on the steps. And when I sponsor people, what does that look like? So I should clarify, I I had an abstinence when I first came in, but it was pretty broad. Um, And it was really tailored around what my disease looked like at that time. Um, And so for me, that abstinence is still the abstinence that I have today, is that I don't eat fast food, I don't go through drive-thrus, I have some specific food items, alcoholic foods that I don't eat, and I don't eat in my car alone unless I've told my sponsor that I'm going to. Um, so when I work with sponsees, I do have folks, you know, I do work with folks to define an abstinence, um, and I, it sort of depends on what their story is, um, and I'm, and what they need, and it's really different for each person. And, and I think my abstinence has stayed the same, but my food plan has changed over the years, and my, I didn't have a red light, green light, food lit, green light, red light, yellow light food list until three months ago. Um, so that's, I think, how some of my shifts have, have come. So what part of the red light, green light, yellow light food, and what caused the shift? So the question is, what prompted the red light, yellow light, green light food list? What prompted the shift? You know, I think coming back, um, coming back to L.A. and coming back into these rooms, like, helped me take a really honest look at what had been going on with my food, that while I was abstinent, um, technically abstinent, um, I think that I wasn't necessarily food sober, um, you know, in making that distinction. And so I think that I realized that it was time to look at my food and it was time to be honest about my food with somebody else. And I think it took me, you know, six years to be willing and ready and faithful enough to be honest um, about my food and my eating. Have I found that my autoimmune diseases have affected my food and what have I done about it? Um, yes, 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 yes. You know, keeping clean language completely. You know, and it's been, that's been one of my, one of my really large challenges in this room because with autoimmune diseases, I've worked with, I, I worked with and I'm working with both traditional doctors and naturopathic doctors. And if you look out there, there's a lot of evidence, or anecdotal evidence anyway, about not eating this food group and this food group and this food group, which messes with my disease. Um, and so I've worked with people, and I'm always really honest that, like, I, I qualify for these rooms, I'm in these rooms. And so we have taken things slowly, um, and so, like, at this point, I don't eat gluten. Um, and I'm on a plan, you know, perhaps to, you know, my doctor wants me then to give, maybe give up grains and maybe give up dairy. But, like, I'm doing it with my sponsor. I'm not doing it on my own um, because I can get really triggered. Like, all right, like, I'm off to the races. If I give up these things, like, this will change. 
um, and I have to stay out of that. So I can't do it by myself, and I have to be honest with the healthcare providers that I'm working with, and it has to be super, super slow. Um, but it's, it's been a real work in progress and really imperfect. Um, and there have been moments, you know, where I've tried certain things and it, it has reactivated my disease. And then when I stopped those things, like, I swung on the other side of the pendulum. So I'm definitely a work in progress on that. Okay. Um, thank you for sharing. Um, what do you still do today that sabotages your recovery? And once you realize that, how do you mitigate that? The question is, what do I still do today that sabotages my recovery, and what do I do to mitigate that? Hmm. I think that I don't need you. You know, I think that, you know, I have eating disorder light, um, and so I don't need four meetings, and I don't need commitments, and if I pray and meditate and write in my journal and call my sponsor, like, I'll be pretty good. Like, that's my will and my disease saying that, you know, when you, stories in the big books, you know, I, I sometimes want to say, well, I'm in the middle of the road person, you know, um, I start telling myself that I don't have it bad enough, um, because I was never 100 pounds higher, and I was never 100 pounds lower, so I think, well, maybe I don't really need it, so that's it, I mean, that's one, and the other thing, which is, I'm working with a lot, and I don't have a clear answer around yet, is my autoimmune stuff oh, I, I probably really need to rest. Like, I should stay in bed versus going to a meeting. I do that a lot. Like, I'm not sure, like, what is more important for my overall recovery and healing, and so my disease can play with that. And so today, like, I'm making the commitment that I come to meetings, even if that's the only thing that I do in a day, um, that I come to meetings. But that's because I have willingness to do that today. A year ago, I didn't. Um, and that's also the gift of this program, right, is that we can get more recovery and more willingness if we pray for it and if we do the footwork for it. Um, thanks for that question. Yeah, can I talk about my higher power and what that looks like for me today? You know, coming into these rooms, the idea of a higher power, it was such a gift because I grew up, I grew up in, in, in you know, organized religion and when I became old enough to make my own decisions, um, I left that, you know, I left that organized religion because it, it was one of, it felt like my experience of it was one of judgment and one of guilt and one of shame and I did that enough on my own. You know, I didn't need any organized group doing that in addition to what I was doing to myself. Um, and then also, you know, in, in the work that I did, in some sort of intellectual circles, there was also, you know, like, God is the opiate of the masses. And so also, like, talking about God was something like, oh, I'm not sure I want to say that out in the world. So the gift of being in here was that I got to just have my higher power. And I didn't have to explain it to anyone. Like, I spent so long feeling like if I couldn't articulate my higher power to people, then it wasn't the right one. That somehow I was missing it. Like, I was missing the mark. And that you had to agree and, like, sign off on my higher power. And these rooms and the second step just gave me the gift of it's my concept of higher power. Not anybody else's. Nobody has to understand it. Nobody has to agree with it. I don't have to really talk about it to anybody. It's just mine and and it's my like life force i call my higher power god higher power and sometimes it is something outside of me and sometimes it's inside of me like on some days where i'm a little doubtful it's the highest version of myself you know like i allow it to be fluid because that's what makes this work for me um and i i recognize that 
I'm not in this alone, and like that's what's been so important to me. So when I was driving here, making my you know Pasadena to West Hollywood commute this morning, thinking, oh, I'm not going alone. Like I have my higher power, and I sometimes put my hand on my heart because that's what I do when I feel like I need to connect with my higher power when I'm out in the world. Like remembering that like I'm not alone here, um, and that there is somebody else who is having the sunrise, having the sunset, um, and I just need to take one minute at a time and take one, put one foot in front of the other, take the next indicated action, and stay out of the results, and I'll be okay. And that's worked for me. Um, thanks. What do you tell your daughter in terms of how do you explain to her that you're question is, how do I explain to my darling in this program? That's, that's really interesting. So right now, she knows it as my better mommy meetings. So she knows that I go to meetings so that I can be a better mommy. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about, like, what age, you know, what age I feel comfortable explaining more. Um, and, and I don't have any answers to that yet because I get nervous that I don't want to put stuff into her head that's not there yet because she's having a really different experience in life than I am. Nobody's talking about her body. She, we're pretty, um, she doesn't do a lot of screens, you know, so we, we kind of limit some of the external influence around, like, bodies and women and all of that. I'm going to try and control it as much as I can um, while she's young. But as she gets a little bit older, you know, she knows that we come, that I come to talk about feelings, um, to talk about what's hard in life, to learn about tools and what other people are doing to help get through life. Um, and so that's where I'm at today with it. But I look forward to her knowing more because I think, you know, her knowing that this is possible, um, when and if, because I have moments where I think she's one of us, um, and when and if she is, it's none of my business. But she will know that these rooms exist, um, and I'm so grateful that she will have that opportunity, maybe at age 16, 19, 20, if she needs it, in a way that was different from, from when I first learned about the rooms at that age. Sure. Yeah. Um, so the question was, how do I work with my family of origin um, today? With holidays coming up, you know, it's a great question. So my my father is. 76 and still very active in his disease. I'm an only child. And I just came back from visiting him this past weekend. And so what it looks like today is I still have a relationship. I've never um, cut off the relationship. Um, But today, like, I've learned to have boundaries. I've learned about my own self-care in that space. And the level of compassion that I can have for him today, because I also identify as an addict just in a different way, is really, it's really beautiful. I mean, it's really painful to be in, but it's also really beautiful. So today, you know, I was able to go and visit, and I I had a really tough experience in the spring going. Um, And so one of the things I learned was I don't go alone. Um, I don't go alone. I don't stay with him anymore. Um, I stay somewhere else. Um, I have my own kind of limits about what I'll be a part of and what I won't be a part of while I'm there. I make a lot of calls when I'm there. Um, I bring my program, and this past trip, you know, was hard and painful. Um, 
But I'm grateful that I can be in his life. And I'm grateful that I can both see, you know, there was this moment where we were sitting across the couch from each other. And I saw in his eyes that, like, he just wanted me out of there so he could do what he wanted to do with his alcohol. And the little kid in me felt like, oh, like my dad again is choosing, and I'll wrap up. My dad, oh, okay, thanks. That my dad is choosing alcohol over me. That was the eight-year-old, right? And the recovery me, the adult me, could say, I know that feeling. I know that feeling of just wanting somebody to get out of there so I can do what I want to do with my food and with my body. And so I was able to just acknowledge it and show up with a lot of compassion. Um, and that's a gift of this, of this program. And so I learned to, that I get to be a grown-up in my relationships with my family of origin. Like I'm 46. I'm still the daughter, but I'm an adult daughter, and I get to show up in a different way. Um, and that's working for me right now. You know, I, I think that I'm not sure how to proceed with my dad, in all honesty. Um, because there isn't any willingness on, there's no willingness on multiple levels. And so for right now, what I've learned is I don't have to make a decision. Like, my higher power will, more will be revealed, and that hasn't happened yet. And so I'll just take it as it comes, and at some point, more will be revealed. I think there might be time for one more. Oh, Alex. Thank you so much for your shit, Tara. You said a lot of great things and uh, shared a lot of the, the, the slogans and aphorisms we hear in, in the rooms. And one of them was uh, uh, God is either everything or he's nothing. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about what that means to you? Yeah, um, I talked a lot about some of the slogans in the program and what they mean to me. And one of them was God is everything, God is nothing. And can I share a little bit about that? You know, when I was working my working the steps, um, my sponsor had me go through a week of and writing about and experiencing life as God is everything, and then a week of experiencing life and writing about life as if God is nothing. And it was it just crystallized it for me in a way that became so clear. Like my life was, and God, I didn't know what God necessarily was, but just the idea that something bigger than me was out there, that there was a plan that I was taking care of, that my needs were going to be met and I was going to be okay. I felt like light and shadow. Um, And so I think how that looks to me today sometimes is fear and faith. I feel like when God is everything, I'm living in faith, and when God is nothing, I'm living in fear. And so I think that guides me a lot because fear, like I didn't know that I was a fearful person before I came into these rooms. And now I'm able to see like how fear drives so much of what I do and don't do in life. Um, And so I think I get to remind myself of that every day and particularly, you know, getting on my knees every morning and, you know, saying steps one, two and three remind me um, that I have a choice. Um, to have God be everything in my day and have God or have God be nothing in my day and you know when I'm willing God is everything Um, and when I'm not you know there are shadows so it's something that I I strive for imperfectly one day at a time how are we one more or are we done a quick one Totally. The question is, but like perfectionism and how that 
how that affects my program. If I only work my program a little bit better. Yeah, all the time. I mean, I am a recovering perfectionist, just as I am a, you know, a recovering compulsive overeater. Um, so I think that then I go to acceptance is the only answer to my problems today. Like, I am where I am today in my program, in my recovery, in my willingness for a reason. And I, and I may not understand what that reason is, um, but I don't have to understand what it is. And I just keep praying for willingness. Like, that's the one prayer that's never left. Like, willing to do this, willing to do that, willing to come to meetings, willing to take a commitment. Um, so, and it changes. It, it ebbs and flows, but... I can recognize it now when it comes, like when all these defects like still pop up, like what it looks like today for me is that they pop up less frequency with less intensity and with less duration. It doesn't mean that they're gone. It just means that they, I experience them in a different way today. Um, and I can, you know, I can bring my disease into my program just like I can bring it into any other aspect of my life. Um, and I'm grateful to have sponsors and fellows um, to help me um, in those moments. I think that is it for that part.